This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and as always, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raftopoulos. How's it going, Johnny? Very good, Dan. Uh, well, as good as we can be. Uh, but finals footy, it's here, and yeah, it didn't disappoint. Yeah, it was an interesting set of games. We've got plenty to talk about. Uh, I guess they're all quite different in their own ways, but yeah, lots to work with. Yeah, plenty to work with, uh, and common themes, I think, um, with all these games, and we'll get to that, I think, very shortly. So what caught your eye then? Well, there's, it can't be avoided. It's been the news all week so far, and look, Toby Green, the uh, touching umpires, I mean, yeah, it's it was always going to dominate the airwaves and papers. Uh, yeah, he's got his three weeks, and um, yeah, misses a grand final. I think McLaughlin's not too happy about it, Gillen McLaughlin, that would be, and uh, the AFL might actually appeal that to try and get it a little bit of a longer sanction. But yeah, I think it needed to be a harsh penalty, and I wasn't too worried about the specific number of weeks. But yeah, I think like he argued that he wasn't guilty, but I think most people looking at that would agree that there were, he didn't need to do it, and there was a little bit of uh, demonstrativeness in what he did there. I think there was. Um, yeah, and a lot of people are saying it was a bit of a light penalty maybe and because uh, he didn't, wasn't like he pleaded guilty. He definitely um, went in with the uh, the defence, I guess, and the um, saying things, saying, you know, like... Sorry, I might have to edit this bit later, but yeah. Um, the, just saying how um, he didn't mean it, he did, uh, it wasn't meant that way, but he could admit that it was a uh, a bad look. Uh, I just think he should have pleaded guilty. Yeah, only Toby Green keeps putting himself in these sort of situations, so I guess you get what's coming to you eventually, and yeah, I guess we'll move on. Even if the Giants make the grand final, he's not going to be there, but I think that's a pretty long shot. So is- for... Yeah, you're right. That's the thing. I mean, it seems like something that only Toby Green could get into. <laughs> At least in this circumstance where he's basically shirt front of the umpire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does sound yep. like a very Toby Green thing. That's it. All right. So we're going to work our way through each of the four games that we had over the weekend. And uh, I think we've got some talking points and uh, questions to come out of each game to try and recap them. So the first one we're going to have a look at was the Battle of the Bridge fought out at uh, Utah's stadium in Launceston. So the ground was looking a million dollars. I think they could have about 10,000 in. I'm not sure how many were actually in attendance, but there was plenty of Sydney supporters there. So this was the sixth place Swans and the seventh place Giants coming into the game. Yep. Beautiful looking ground. Absolutely. Fit for finals. So I think Sydney were a lot of people's sort of smoky coming into this final series, thinking that they might be able to do a little bit of damage from outside the top four. But uh, yeah, tough assignment first up and against GWS, they're always pretty tough games, these ones. Very tough. I mean, it seems like they're usually going to be a coin flip and two very good sides. I was feeling like Sydney would be um, maybe have the edge that there's I guess their beautiful, expansive game might get the better of the the Giants' hard-nosed contested game. But uh, yeah, it was another typical case of uh, the Styles making the fight. Yep, absolutely. 
So let's go into a short rundown of what happened in the game and then we'll jump into some of the talking points. So it was a tight first quarter where Sydney seemed to be getting on top, but thanks to some Toby Green magic, uh, they managed to stem the flow and it was 3-2-20 apiece at quarter time. So the Giants were looking dangerous from around stoppage as well, despite conceding a lot of inside 50s. So in the second quarter, this was really where the Giants exploded. So they put the Swans to the sword in about a 10-minute period where they kicked five goals. Many of these were from stoppage as well, and just winning big contested possessions and getting the ball on quickly. And uh, yeah, at one point, I think it was in the third quarter, they got it out to about 30 points. And uh, Hogan was marking everything inside 50, had a couple of pretty simple set shots both of which hit the post, and I guess that left the door open for Sydney in the last quarter. Yeah, um, it was really good to see Hogan play this kind of game, by the way. I think he had about eight marks, maybe six contested, something like that. Uh, but yeah, it was really, really... It was it was going to be a nail-biter, that's for sure. And um, I think a lot of people were giving Sydney... They were fancying Sydney's chances. So they're up by 19, I think, from memory at three-quarter time. So... Definitely not a match-winning lead, but there's not too many t- games where a team winning by thir- uh, 19 points gets overtaken in the last quarter, I suppose. It's a pretty handy lead. It's a pretty handy lead. Although I think GWS's record in last quarters has been pretty poor this year, so the Swans probably would have thought they were every chance. And I think that's what um, the case that the commentators were making at the time. They were saying, uh, yeah, that they don't finish well. They do tend to fatigue, I guess, in that last quarter, whereas Sydney are full of run and uh, they've got the guys who can score. So, yeah, I think they were thinking if Sydney were in touch by at least three goals or less, they were always a chance. So Sydney really had all the play in this last quarter. So it was actually 2-7 to one point. And it was a valuable point for the Giants because that was the one point that separated them at the end of the game, 74 to 73. So Swans yeah. had heaps of shots late as well to try and steal this, including a Franklin set shot from about 48, maybe 50 metres on about a 45-degree angle, maybe slightly more acute than that. He couldn't quite get it done, didn't swing back. And despite having uh, four extra scoring shots overall and 19 inside 50s uh, more for the game. They couldn't quite get the job done. You would have put some money on Sydney getting in front in that last quarter. I mean, I just couldn't believe how many of these shots they were burning, uh, especially Lance. Uh, I think uh, Hickey had a decent one earlier in the quarter as well. Uh, yeah, I think Franklin's is probably the hardest shot of them all, but oh, still yeah, kind of absolutely. expected him to kick it. It's Buddy, yeah. You just thought... He'll- it will go close. It was, and and there was also a moment late in the game where I think I can't remember which player it was, but Heaney was open, short in the fifty, didn't quite lower the eyes. I can't remember who it was with the ball, but uh, yeah, they, they'll that one will burn in the guts for a while, I think. Yeah, it could be tough summer after a loss like that, but it probably will stand them in good stead going forward. Like I don't think they were going to win or really push for the premiership this year in all reality. So their time mm. is probably ahead and, you know, it hurts to lose an elimination final, but probably not the end of the world. No, I don't think so. And they'll definitely learn from it. It's been a great season. No one expected this. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them next year, actually, this one's. We'll just have to try and avoid the Giants in future final series. They seem to have <laughs> a knack of knocking them out. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so we've got some talking points to come out of this game now. So the first one is how did the Giants set up their match-winning lead? Uh, so I might just quickly go through a few points that I noted down here, then I'll throw to you, Johnny. Yep. So in the first half, it was really their stoppage dominance. Uh, they were getting, I think they got three goals from inside 50 stoppages, all quite deep, uh, good positioning and making sure they could get a guy on the move and then one directly out of the center square as well. Uh, so as I alluded to earlier as well, just winning some really big contests, whether it be at the wing or half forward and just being able to put the Swans defense under pressure by getting the ball in quickly, even if there wasn't a whole lot of system to it all the time. And I guess maybe the biggest thing was just how many inside 50s against they were able to stand under and just defend against basically. So the unheralded backline, I suppose, of Sam Taylor, Stein, Cumming, uh, among others, were real standouts on the day. Yeah, I've really been impressed with this backline. I think uh, the, the most mature guy there is um, is Haynes, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But, yeah, that the Swans had a lot of inside 50s in that first half, and it seemed like they were playing with fire, the Giants, a bit. And, you know, I thought if that if it was going to continue that way for the game they were just going to get blown out of the water but they really did manage to hold up well and uh winning it at the coal face obviously guys like Taranto Kelly was doing well um really just making the most of their opportunities and green getting on the scoreboard early yeah that they they came to play there's no doubt about that yeah I guess with their style they they probably don't actually need as many inside 50s. It's kind of similar to the Geelong game in some ways where they were finding sort of different ways to score and putting Geelong under pressure in similar ways to what we described here. So although it seems like there's this massive inside 50 differential, it's almost how they sort of set up the game in a way. Yeah, it's it's definitely not super straightforward, uh, but they definitely, they've got those, they've got the potency up forward to, they've got enough cutting edge, I guess, in that you only need a limited amount of chances and they can kick a winning score. Whereas there's some teams that probably don't have that cutting edge and they rely on getting a certain amount of inside fifties. And if there's not enough, they need to get more. It's yeah. And I guess it's opposite, also yeah. sort of like the quality of the inside fifties. Like a lot of the time when they were getting it in, the Swans didn't actually have that many numbers back. Cause they'd actually, you know, won some pretty good contests and sort of cleared the area where there was congestion. So yeah, it's definitely a different way they play, but seems to work if they can exert the pressure for long enough and uh, hold up in the back line. Yeah, no, I think Leon Cameron deserves a lot of credit. He's sort of altered the plan a bit over time, and yeah, I th- think they're definitely going to be hard to play against this week, even without Green. So we've already alluded to him, but let's talk about him a bit more. All us uh, Melbourne supporters still like... Jesse Hogan, and this is probably the best game I've seen him play since he left Melbourne. So he was just marking everything, it seemed. like his, A lot of them were one-grab marks too, which he, he's not always a one-grab player, but he was looking super dangerous inside 50. And Yeah, I used to kind of question his ability to, you know, compete in the contest one-on-one with a player. He was more of a, you know, get-out-on-the-lead type player, but maybe he's got a bit stronger. I don't know. He was marking everything in this game. Yeah, well, he definitely took that aspect of the game up a level. I was in the same boat at Melbourne. I thought that uh, 
he was he was strong, but I didn't really see him as a contested aerial threat all that much. He would take a good one every now and then, but quite often he'd also get caught under the ball as well. Yeah, and yeah. he was probably more a lead forward, if anything. But um, I was also really impressed. I thought, yeah, he was just see ball, get ball, uh, very strong in the contest. Uh, he'd get it to ground if he had to. Uh, I, I agree. I think that is the most complete game that he's played since he's left Melbourne. So he kicked two good goals and he had those two shots in the third quarter. One was from about, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 out on a slight angle on the wrong side for a right footer. And then one a little bit further out, closer to straight in front. Both kind of just nursed them into the post, didn't quite kick through it. And mm. I definitely remember those sort of kicks from Hogan. He's generally a pretty straight set shot, but yeah, occasionally just sort of uh, doesn't quite kick through it, I suppose. Yeah, um, but he definitely looked a lot more fluid with his uh, set shot approach. He didn't, ha- you know, he's always been one to have the stutter step and that he's he looked a lot like a lot freer as yeah. he would make that approach. So do you reckon if he'd nailed either of those shots, we probably would have in some ways been denied that really exciting last quarter? Like the Swans would have still been coming, but it would have been a lot harder, I think. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I think it would have... Uh, it definitely would have made it a lot harder for the Swans, uh, but yeah, look, it was, it was, it, it's a sliding doors moment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So the Giants really seemed to be able to keep the Swans at bay for more or less the whole game until the last quarter. But uh, yeah, what do you think sort of changed in that last quarter where the Swans finally did get their running game going a little bit and uh, yeah, the Giants just couldn't really get anything going at all? Yeah, really, really hard to pinpoint that. I, I, I think it definitely started from the middle. Uh, the Swans knew that they had to take risks. They knew they had to sort of spread and get you know, get sort of some overlap. I guess. Um, I don't like to say that they got lucky or anything, but there were maybe a couple of lucky bounces here and there. <laughs> it's a stupid <laughs> thing to say, but, um, yeah. I mean, we go back to momentum. Sometimes you create your own luck, things like that. But um, they also seemed to really get more of the entries that they needed as well. And uh, maybe with a much more fatigued GWS, uh, maybe they were able to capitalise on a more. It, yeah, I'm not actually totally sure, but they definitely did something to build up on that momentum that they were gathering. Yeah, perhaps it was partly just to, to GWS, uh, you know, dropping down a little bit with the way they're playing. It is a pretty taxing game style and mm, they couldn't quite do it to the highest level all the way through and they just managed to hang in there. Yeah, yeah. So another interesting thing for Sydney was uh, their use of Franklin and Heaney in this game. So first half, it was really Franklin playing as the deepest forward. He was looking pretty dangerous, but at the same time, Sam Taylor was doing a pretty good job on him and intercepting and getting the ball going back the other way as well. So I think Longmire at halftime kind of identified that he wanted a bit of a different look going inside 50. And despite the fact that Franklin had kicked three first half goals, he wanted to play Heaney a bit deeper, which you'd have to say paid off. I think it definitely paid off. Uh, it was a nice foil for Franklin. And, you know, Heaney's got some pretty good overhead skills as well. Uh, yeah, it definitely paid off. I mean, the good thing about the Sydney forward line is they can be flexible. They can sort of change it up and keep you guessing a bit. And maybe for a young backline like GWS, that was a bit hard to deal with. And I think it did, not maybe not unsettle GWS' backline, but 
it did take Sam Taylor a little bit further up the ground, which yes. I think helped Sydney score. And from memory, I'm pretty sure Heaney kicked both of the last quarter goals for Sydney. So yep. it was definitely the biggest threat. Yeah, absolutely. And last one for this game, should the Swans still be alive in the finals? And I ask this because a lot of people have been saying that, you know, they'd give the Swans a better chance against Geelong this week than the Giants. So mm. did the Giants sort of just fall over the line here? Should it really be the Swans who are moving on? Yeah. Uh, I think GWS were fantastic. Uh, and you could make a case that their early work was just enough to given the points in this question. Did they deserve it? Maybe you could say that they did. But I think that Sydney definitely should have won in the end. I think they definitely made enough. They had enough forward entries. They had enough of you know shots on goal, and I was expecting them to do it. I was definitely expecting them to overtake them in the end. Uh, yeah, like I said, there was that moment at the end. I think lower the. I still can't remember which player did it, but it was Heaney <laughs> that was open. Yeah, and that was at least another shot on goal. Could have been you know behind at least take it to extra time. They missed, I think, I think three yeah. kind of simple-ish shots. Like they weren't absolute gimmies, but. They weren't really hard shots they were missing. No, they weren't. And really all they needed was one. So I have to say, yes, I think Sydney should be the ones that are going to the semifinal. Well, I guess Geelong can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief there, but uh, it'll still be an interesting game nonetheless, especially seeing as the Giants beat them last time. So definitely no lay down there there. Yeah, and just on that, you know, we all remember what, happened in the preliminary final, I think it was 2019, when no one gave GWS a chance without Toby Green and a couple of others. And we all remember what happened next. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Bad memories for Pies supporters there getting overrun in the last quarter. Yep. All right. So that's the first game, one and done. So that was the elimination final. Let's move to a qualifying final. So this was played between Melbourne and Brisbane at the Adelaide Oval Melbourne getting to choose the venue there, and this was the Saturday night game. So I'll throw to you, Johnny, for this one. Thanks, Dan. Yep, one we've all been waiting for. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, this was actually the first qualifying final, despite being played as the second one on the weekend. Uh, it was the best defensive team versus the best offensive team in the competition, uh, if you go according to stats. And, uh, yes, didn't disappoint. And the game did start with a bang, real high-scoring opening quarter. It was one of the better quarters, I think, of uh, footy all season, just from both sides. A lot of speed, a lot of run, hard running space, just a lot of chaos ball. Uh, and it was goal for goal for a while. Brisbane just cutting Melbourne up in the stoppages and on the ground in the forward 50. Charlie Cameron was on the board early. Uh, but Melbourne did dominate the second quarter. Everything was in full swing. Uh, the ball movement was real, you know, fast and slick, spreading, defended beautifully. Uh, the only thing that they really didn't do, you know, per- like it was a perfect performance if for the uh, accuracy. They weren't quite accurate enough. Uh, third quarter was interesting. They did hold Brisbane out. Maybe uh, they didn't quite capitalize on their opportunities, but they did hold Brisbane to two goals in that quarter. Uh, so, that was their flat quarter, I guess you could say. But uh, in the fourth quarter, Brisbane probably thought they had a tiny bit of a sniff, but it was Melbourne who ramped it up again with back-to-back goals from Christian Petrarca. 
and Bailey Fritch, I think, kicking a couple in that last quarter as well. Uh, very complete performance from Melbourne. Clayton Oliver, uh, undoubtedly best on ground, I think you'd have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, look, my instant thoughts from this game, Dan, uh, the synergy with the Melbourne players is pretty much at, at, it's at its peak at the moment. I think um, when guys like Ed Langdon got the ball, it was a result of a, a pass from a Melbourne player knowing where he was going to be rather than where he was at standing at the time. Uh, you know, another good, good example was that uh, brilliant kick from Clayton Oliver to Cozzy Pickett. It was like a, almost like a, a, run, a timed run from a soccer player and a, a through uh, ball. Yeah, it yeah, was, yeah, beautiful, beautiful football there. Um, yeah, and as I said in the beginning, best defense versus best offense. Uh, how do you reckon it went, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going into it, I was feeling a little bit nervous, but not overly nervous, but just knowing that, you know, it's a big game and you got to win, especially after Port had won their game. You really didn't want to go through Port Adelaide, so it ramped up the pressure even more on this game. But I kind of settled the nerves by just thinking about, like, you know, no one, well, everyone wants the result, right? But it's not really about the result that much. It's more about the journey. So, like, that's what life's about, right? If you don't have the journey, then the result doesn't actually mean anything. So, you know, there are, it's, even if Melbourne wins the Premiership this year, there's going to be a time where it kind of looks like it's not going to happen or something's going to go wrong. So, like, to get that ultimate reward of the Premiership and, you know, getting joy from that, I think you kind of just got to, get along for this journey and just not worry too much about what might happen along the way. I know that's hard to actually do, but yeah, it's just a kind of a mindset thing, trying not to get too anxious about what could or couldn't be happening through these final series. I think you're absolutely right there, Dan. I think it is about the journey as much, at least as much about the result. Uh, And it's because, the message I'm getting each game, each big game that we're having, is that it's worth putting faith into our back six. Even if things aren't looking great, it's worth just sitting back and trusting the process occasionally because they're just proving it time and time again that they can kill anything that comes in, in there, really. A few quick, a few more quick points before I get into some more questions, Dan. Uh, Jake Lever, did you know that this is the fifth time this year he's had 15 intercept possessions? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's amazing to have that sort of player. Like, He's just the sort of player that I guess it wasn't as big a thing you know, in the previous five years to the five years we've just had, but just having that sort of player in your team can just make the world of difference, especially the way the game's played now. Just look at what Aaliyah did in their game. Yes. Like, These guys are the ones who are starting these really potent attacks going back the other way, and you're stopping the opposition from scoring. They're getting in the exact right spot. They're just worth their weight in gold. They're, I think he's worth every cent and every fraction of a draft pick that to give away to get him. So, hundred percent on board the Jack Lever, Jake Lever chain train that it would be. Absolutely, hundred percent agree with that. I think Jake's perfected his role to the max. He knows exactly when to peel off. He knows exactly when to be the third man up, to come in for the spoil, uh, to stick to the zone. Uh, he's a nightmare to be playing against, I think. And yeah, it's it's getting to the point where I think you've almost got to consider tagging him, which sounds ridiculous, but you've almost got to sacrifice the player now to make sure he doesn't get anywhere near it or that he can't at least influence the contest. It's uh, almost hard. I, I, I see what you're saying and I've heard other people sort of saying that, but 
if the interceptor is doing their job to perfection, you almost can't tag them unless you're actually putting body contact on them. Because even if you're going up in a marking contest with them, then like they're better at it than you. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> so, no, that's true. That's true. So like you'll back them in a fifty-fifty over you. Yeah, absolutely. So, but maybe 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 it could help a bit. But I'm just not sure how much you can actually tag an interceptor. And maybe some are more susceptible to it than others. Like I know you've been able to get McGovern sometimes over the years with these sort of matchups, but I'm just not sure how susceptible Lever would be to being tagged in that way. Look, I, yeah, I don't think it's a very wise thing to do. It's but it's. You know, you, people are scratching their heads. Maybe I think, you got to try how to play yeah. this guy. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, we keep hearing, oh, you've got to, you've got to make him play one on one. Yeah, look, maybe that is it. Maybe you, if you can get find some way to make Jake Lever play one on one as much as possible, that is probably the way. But it, yeah, it, it's just become very, very hard. I mean, it's easy to also go into these games and think of, you, you, we see these teams. They, pro- I'm sure, their game plan is. Don't bomb it into the 50. They're just going to cut it off all day. But we, time and time again, we see these teams go into these games and they revert to that tactic. We saw, I think, Essendon a few weeks, well, maybe a couple of months ago now. They um, that they weren't doing it at the start, but then during the game, it was they just couldn't help it. Uh, and there were other many other teams that have done it like that this year as well. Uh, yeah, it's easy to say, like, don't bomb it, but... It also depends a lot on what's happening up the field as well. Like, it does. If Melbourne has their game in order further up the field, sometimes the opposition doesn't really have much of a choice other than to bomb it. So, like, That's right. There's more than just don't bomb it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, all right, let's get to some of these questions. So my first question to you, Dan, is were the Demons that good or did they simply expose a Brisbane outfit with too many critical players out? Obviously, yeah. there's some a bit of both. So, if yeah. you want to give us a bit of a ratio, like yeah, a, sure. a, out of hundred, yeah. I think personally, watching the game, I probably maybe didn't give Melbourne as much credit. Like I thought they were fantastic, but I think like listening to some of the commentary around the game, I think people have been more glowing in their praise of Melbourne than they have been critical of Brisbane as like a ratio. Whereas I was probably more fifty-fifty. Just how easy Melbourne were able to transition against Brisbane it really exposed their midfield not right like their yeah their midfield just not running both ways and how easily they were able to get off their defenders as well so I guess a lot of that is just you know the way Melbourne's setting up the game but yeah it it really looked like Melbourne could basically do anything they wanted, which is kind yeah. of amazing. And the other side of it was when Brisbane got the ball, uh, they were pretty impotent because of how well Melbourne was being set up. So I guess the thing it brings me back to is the fact that the best teams don't let you play the way you want to play. And I think that's exactly what we saw in this game. Even if Brisbane did were off in a few areas, they were absolutely made to look pretty second rate by a pretty complete performance from Melbourne. Where do, where do you sit on this one? Yeah, I'm I'm very close to that line of thinking. Uh, I'd probably go, honestly, I'd probably go 70-30 in terms of Melbourne being good and Brisbane uh, being exposed with injuries or, or whatever it was, you know, poor performance. I definitely think it played a part with them. Uh, and you can definitely look at some things like... Uh, Lockie Neal not getting enough help 
because look, he really, I think he had 46 possessions. He could have had 60. It wouldn't have made a difference. <laughs> uh, he had a bit of help from Lions, but I think the guys like Robinson, Zorko, uh, McCluggage, they just, yeah, they weren't great. Um, Harris Andrews, I noticed a lot of people have been kind of getting stuck into Harris Andrews this week. And look, he did sort of make some errors in the game. He, he gives, there's a lot of talk. He gives his um, forwards a lot of, a lot of leg rope, I guess. That's just the way he plays. You know, he, he, he kind of sags off the contest a bit. But, uh, you know, he still had nine intercepts in this game, Dan. It's it's not a bad game, really. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Like, uh, so he was probably a little bit down. There were definitely moments where he allowed Ben Brown a chance to get at yeah. the footy. Yeah. But I didn't think he was terrible. Yeah. And like, like, I yeah. think some of that, like Brisbane looking like they were exposed, they did come into it a bit more in the second half, especially in that third quarter where Melbourne maybe let off the foot the off the gas a little bit. So I think it probably was more just Melbourne being right on the top of their game, being willing to attack at every point they could, putting them under heat's pressure, pressure having really good defensive structure and taking up their chances. So yeah, I guess it was more or less a complete performance from Melbourne other than just a little bit of inaccuracy, but they still got enough on the board. So yeah, like Maybe some of the Lions' habits playing some of these lower teams haven't stood them in great stead for a game like this. But, yeah, I think it just what the way it played out, it almost seemed like it was always going to happen like this. If Melbourne could bring that level, then the Lions weren't going to be able to stand up to it. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that, that's what I thought. And, you know, look, someone like Hipwood might have helped, but honestly, I just kind of felt the way that we were defending, I didn't really... They took five marks inside 50 for the game. He might have helped that a bit, but uh, Joe Danaher, very little impact. All his possessions outside the 50 pretty much. I think um, watching Stephen May's interview, he pretty much said everything short of it was a real easy night for me. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I just I thought the way we were set up, the way we were structured, I think, yeah, I think we deserved a fair bit of credit there. Obviously, McStay went down early with that injury and that didn't help. Yeah, that him, was a big loss. I, Very I still loss. don't think it would have made a huge impact on the game. Like, Probably not. He's a good contested mark, and maybe he would have got a couple of those. But the way Melbourne is setting up in defence, they can protect against really good tall forwards anyway. So yeah, I I don't think it would have made a huge difference personally. Yeah, look again, might have helped a little, but I don't think it. Yeah, the only thing was it might have mucked up the balance a bit. They had to rely more on Danaher and and Cameron and and uh, yeah, I guess McCarthy, but. Uh, yeah, no, look, I don't think it would have made much difference. Um, next question. Does it take one power quarter of footy to win a final? Because it seems like in this game and in a lot of the other games this week, every team had one amazing quarter that really set up their win. Yeah, I guess that is all it takes. Like We used to talk a lot about the premiership quarter and you got to win the third, but... Uh... Now in these games where it's a bit tighter fought in terms of, you know, there's not as much scoring as there once was, if you can put like a four, five, six goal quarter on an opposition, sometimes that's enough to actually give you the edge in the game you need. And uh, I guess teams are so good at actually just taking sort of time out of the game or, you know, playing it in their front half, even if they're not scoring heavily, um, the clock is sort of on your side very quickly and, yeah, I think you're right. One good quarter can probably do the job if you're holding up in those other quarters. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it definitely sets the tone, especially if it's early, like 
Port Adelaide's and Melbourne's were. Um, but yeah, you can just not cruise after that, but it definitely gives you the confidence to sort of back your systems in and things like that. Yeah. Especially in a final where it's just so hard to, you know, get the ascendancy and put score on the board as it is. And if you get a decent lead and you can somewhere maintain somewhere near that level, even if you're not scoring heavily, you're going to be pretty hard to overtake. Absolutely. Um, next question. We touched on it a bit earlier, but the Brisbane midfield, what were your immediate thoughts on the midfield? Did you think that they could have helped Neil out a bit more? Uh, were there any other things they could have tried, I guess? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess the things that stood out to me was they were just comprehensively beaten other than that third quarter where Melbourne may have uh, taken it a little bit easy. Um, even though Neil got plenty of the ball, it was largely ineffective. And I think the biggest difference that you could see between the Melbourne midfield and uh, the Brisbane midfield, other than their just hardness around the ball, was the two-way, two-way running. And uh, Melbourne had that in spades and Brisbane not so much. And then you got a guy like Zorko, who's sort of their guy who sets a lot up through the midfield and with the, uh, you know, score scoring chances and creating those sort of plays, but he was just completely blanketed. So, yeah, I guess... Melbourne just completely dominated that area from what I could tell. What what do you reckon on this one? This is one area that I'm actually a little bit surprised at because I thought if nothing else, even if we were on top in in most of the statistics and uh, the way we went about it, I I did think that the Brisbane midfield would be a bit more impactful maybe Yeah. with the possessions that they got. Uh, Yeah, the guys like Zorko, um, McCluggage, they're elite ball users, I guess. I was surprised that they were completely overshadowed by the effectiveness of our midfielders. Guys, you know, Clary was probably, maybe that was one of the most effective games I've seen from Clary. Uh, it was definitely his best pure kicking game, I thought. Um, then you've yeah, got some the, beautiful, like, delivery into the 50, spotting up guys. It, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then you've got, this is where the flexibility of our game plan, I thought, came in and really showed that there is a quite a lot of... Uh, you know, levers we can pull, I guess. Um, having Alex Neil Bullen sort of push up from his half-forward position into the midfield and really pre- present as a bit of a marking option and collecting the footy, and he had about 27 possessions. Then you've got guys like James Harms from the midfield pushing forward and stretching our forward. It was, it, it gave their mids a lot to think about, really. They, they had a lot of trouble... Um, they had a lot of trouble making snap decisions on who to guard at times. I found uh, there was just yep. a lot happening and that would also happen up forward too, obviously. But uh, yeah, it was, yeah, very surprising. I just thought that they could match us in that area at least. So lastly, we come to a bit of a fans corner segment of this, uh, <laughs> a segment within a segment. Uh, so Dan, what, how did you feel going into this game? And how did you feel after straight after this game? I already talked a little bit about how I felt going into it. Yes, but you did. Yes. Afterwards, yeah, just really happy and elated, and yeah, like it's kind of a shame that you got to wait a whole two weeks for the prelim final. But you mm. know, I guess no harm in waiting, really. But yeah, I just think it's a massive opportunity for Melbourne. They're most people's premiership favourite now, and uh, you know. They should, on paper, I know nothing happens on paper, but 
if you played the final series out from here a hundred times, I think Melbourne would be winning most of them. So hopefully this is one of those 100 times where they actually do win it. But uh, if they can play like that again, I know there's probably sterner tests to come, particularly if it's poured in the grand final, if we get there. But I just feel like they have almost all the bases covered. And if they can actually play somewhere close to their potential, they really should be winning this. And I know it's a dangerous thing to say, but like if you look back to like through the years, how often does a team that gets comprehensively beaten in the first week of the finals actually win the premiership? It almost never happens. So it hurts. It hurts them. It's if you look at it that way, it's basically down to Melbourne and Port. I think the last time that I can remember it happening where a week one team gets comprehensively beaten and wins it was Adelaide in ninety eight and the probably slightly more recent one is uh, Hawthorne in 2015, mm. lost mm. to West Coast uh, over it in WA by 32. I wouldn't necessarily call that a really bad loss, but, you know, the losses that Brisbane and uh, Geelong have had in these first two weeks, I just don't think you can really recover from that. Maybe you can make... You could definitely make the prelim. Maybe you can even make the grand final, but I just don't think you're winning the whole thing if you get absolutely smashed in the first week of finals. It becomes a little bit of a bridge too far, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, just looking at history. But uh, yeah, yeah, I've kind of diverged a little bit there. From <laughs> No, no. Very, very interesting. Uh, is this the most complete Melbourne side that you've seen in your time watching the Ds? Yeah, absolutely. I say that without any hesitation. Even just looking at the teams on paper coming into the finals, they just look like the strongest team. There's not really any obvious hole they've got stars on every line they're all playing for each other like if not mm. now when really but yep. you know you still got to go out there and win the games but they're in a great position yeah i agree this is definitely the most complete melbourne side i've had the privilege of seeing in my time supporting the d's uh very few weaknesses across this team you could make a little bit of a case that uh we could use maybe another mid-sized small defender to guard those guys like Charlie Cameron, but I don't We've know. We've got Hibbert, but they're not playing him. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that too. That too. But I also, I don't know about you, Dan. I wasn't thinking about that on Saturday. I wasn't. The first thing I was, I wasn't thinking who's who's on Cameron. Who's on Cameron? He's doing a terrible. I, I wasn't thinking that. It was more a case of we just got to keep the ball out of fifty and stop it from hitting the deck midfielders get on top you know things like that oh, yeah it was a strange yeah. first quarter the way they got their goals it was just like kind of a little bit random but like the ball just fell for them and sometimes that happens but they just got like almost four little pieces in a row where they just got it in quickly and the ball fell for them so and that can happen and yep that's kind of what happened Cameron was in the right spot and yeah definitely. Some, sometimes gonna be and he's fantastic get that rubber the green absolutely just quickly, this is how I felt. Uh, not that anyone really wants to know, but uh, yeah, I was quite nervous uh, look, going into the game. I, I was definitely calm to an extent, but uh, when we got the five-goal lead at halftime, I actually got pretty nervous, I thought, <laughs> after what we'd done to Geelong the previous week and after the, num- the numerous Melbourne Football Club games I've seen over time, I just know that a five-goal lead isn't safe. And uh, I just 
what I wanted in that third quarter. I really just wanted to kick a goal or two. Uh, yeah. I've got this thing about going a long time without kicking a goal. I don't uh, mind. Okay. If, if if the opposition's kicking a couple, I don't mind, but I always feel it's better for our confidence if we at least get one. Just get one, yeah. Even if we get a flat quarter. If we... Because we... We defended very well that quarter. We only conceded two. If we'd kicked one, I actually would have felt better. It sounds silly, but it was really like the first couple of minutes, wasn't it? Where Brown had that relatively simple set shot and he missed it. And yeah, yeah. yeah. that drove me nuts. It just, yeah, it's those things. It's those things. Uh, yeah, but look, we did very well. Uh, bit inaccurate, I guess. Didn't quite take those chances, but we've talked about that, haven't we, though? Like, they're never going to be the most accurate. They're never going to be. You just want them to take the real bankers that they should be kicking. I just like so what we kick thirteen goals, fifteen. I'd just love it to be fifteen, thirteen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd be nice. So what? What about moving forward for Melbourne? How do you see it from here? What What are your thoughts of where things stand? And I know there's still a lot of unknowns, but yeah, what do you? What is your thinking? Yeah, I think it's all it's all set up really. Uh, the chance is there. Uh, we've got, we've definitely got the cattle for it. Uh, the, the one thing I've noticed about this team is I feel like a lot of other teams would not deal too well with that pressure of, oh, the team hasn't won for 57 years. And uh, you turn on the TV and all the narratives are about that right now. And I, I understand that and understand that it's very juicy and, uh, people can't help themselves. So that's, that's fine. But, uh, the one thing I feel about this team is I feel like they almost relish that. I, I think yeah. they almost are just like bring it on. We're not we're not afraid. Like we're really to just step into the you know fire for this. You know. Yeah, I think they just have that much confidence now, and like in a kind of strange way, the fact that none of these finals are actually being played in Melbourne could actually help them. Like they probably don't need that extra little bit of help, but just I know they're giving up the home ground advantage, but. Put that aside for one second. Just the fact that they can actually do all this, deal with everything, you know, just do what they need to do as a team outside of Melbourne, outside of that absolute, you know, suffocating expectation. Maybe this is actually a good thing in some ways. It's a good way to put it, actually. Yeah, maybe getting away from from Melbourne for a bit and just focusing on being together as a group. Maybe that's definitely a plus. All right, so lots to look forward to there for Melbourne. Obviously, it can all come undone in prelims, as we've seen happen before. But uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta believe in your team when they're this good. I think so. Yeah, uh, you gotta we'll, back them in. We'll see how they go in a couple of weeks' time. Let's keep going. We've still got a couple of games to go. Um, really interesting one here. The other qualifying final. So this was the first. Uh, game of the round port versus geelong so port had earned the home final uh with a great win over the bulldogs into the last round of the season and uh yeah geelong had slid down to third after that uh capitulation against melbourne in the last round so it was going to be a big thing for them coming in here johnny the fact that they had this game as a home game and if they could win it home prelim yep yep and seemingly a pathway to the grand final uh not bad considering a few weeks ago there were questions whether they should even be in the top four. Yeah, well, it wasn't that long ago that they actually weren't in the top four, was it? What, like maybe three or four weeks ago they yep. weren't even in the top four. So That's right. Definitely came with a rush. All right, so we've got a few points to go through during the game and then also some questions that came out of this one. So 
There is actually quite a few points, so I will get you to jump in at a couple of different times here, Johnny. Sure. There's a few. There's a few to go through. All right. So started the first quarter. It was actually Geelong who had all the play for most of the first ten minutes. Maybe it wasn't quite that long, but Hawkins got a set shot from 45 straight out in front. And in the corresponding fixture last year, I think he kicked one goal five, and this one slid to the left as well. And uh, that was one of their first three misses after that period of dominance. So, yeah, just interstate game, really difficult when you're not taking early chances. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as he missed that first one, I did actually have that in the back of my mind. I thought, well, there's still a long way to go, but... uh... I really felt like he needed to kick that one just to get them off to the right start. And up the other end, it was Port getting a walk-in goal after a kick coming out of the 50, hit the ground and put Henderson under all sorts of pressure. And uh, yeah, very easy goal for Port there in a bit of a worrying side of things to come. Geelong were able to answer through a patient build-up that led to a Cameron goal, but... uh, yeah, the trend of the game was going against Geelong now. So Port Adelaide was managing to turn it over routinely, sort of between that 70 and 80 metre range towards their goal and uh, putting the Cats' defence under all sorts of pressure. And at the other end, it was Aaliyah lighting it up with, I think, four intercept marks in the first quarter. And, uh, yeah, just impassable. This was a game that really... And this this whole round, of this first week of the finals, really was just the underlining example that the game is about bringing pressure and it's about um, the surging forward mentality with the, you know, just getting that forward, getting the chaos ball in there and just locking it in the 50. This was the perfect example of why if you don't bring that, you're really, you're left behind because the port pressure early was just through this first few, first couple of quarters it was just manic and they were just getting it up there quickly they were just catching the cats to back line off guard and uh, Horacio Fantasia taking his chances it, it, they had no answer for this it was that and some of these goals were brilliant I know that you know that in a way that's a bit unlucky for a, for a back line but yeah they just weren't dealing with it well at all Geelong yeah they're going really quick when they got the chance so I guess yep. they saw that as one way to split Geelong open a bit, but uh, weren't afraid to take it straight through the centre, get speed on the game, and the pressure was through the roof. Oh, yeah. So there were multiple fast plays that started with Aaliyah marking it, sort of true centre-half back, getting it on quickly, and just basically going in straight lines from there. So in another worrying sign, Dixon was getting on top of Henderson as well, who hasn't really been in great form throughout the year, but... It just, yeah, all signs were pointing to problems for Geelong here. And at quarter time, it was a 10-point lead to the power. But after quarter time was when Fantasia managed to nail a check side on the run at full pace. Porter built a lead of 25 points and the crowd were in full voice. Geelong just couldn't get any control in the game. They'd only had two marks uh, halfway through the second quarter. And we all know that they loved their chip mark style. So it just showed how far away this was from a game that Geelong wanted to be playing. And by the time the halftime siren rang, it was a twenty point, uh, 29 point lead to the power and Geelong were in a world of pain. 
Dan, I thought about you during this this quarter actually in this game. I actually, <laughs> uh, the number of times you've said it this year, you've said, "Is Geelong's game style? Is it going to hold up in finals? Is it a very? It seems safe, but is it risky in that if you're doing if you're trying to pick off all these short passes and you're just a little bit off, and it gets turned over, goes the other way, is that going to be safe? A safe, a safe bet in finals. Uh, it just all came flooding back to me in this, <laughs> yep, in this half. Yep. And yeah, that was just the way it was. Even saying th- that all through the year, I'd never kind of ma- quite made the connection between that and maybe some of Geelong's poor recent form in finals. And like, maybe that was because it was kind of slightly washed over by last year's final series. But it seems like a lot of those underlying problems are still there. And we'll get into that in a couple of the questions. But uh yeah, I'm I'm glad you thought of me there, Johnny. <laughs> no, no, you're definitely right there, I think. So we won't go into the second half too much. The third quarter was very low scoring. The power did just enough to hold Geelong off. Really the pattern of the game looked very similar. It was just the fact that the power kicked four seven instead of seven four that really stopped it ballooning out completely. But it was still a dominant half, four seven to two five. And uh, the power run out, super impressive, 43-point winners. Yeah, they were really impressive. Really, really impressive. Uh, it was great to see Orazio back in form. Uh, and how good is it when a new All-Australian is named and days later they just prove to the world exactly why they were selected? Uh, I thought Aaliyah was magnificent. Uh, he, he started a lot. It was A lot of their plays started through him. Uh, um, Geelong learned a pretty good lesson in that they just, yeah, they, they couldn't kick to him. <laughs> I mean, it was this harsh lesson, but... Uh, yeah, I wonder how geez. far away we are from recognising, and I think we're getting closer, like recognising these intercepting defenders as the most important players. Like, obviously everyone still talks about the midfielders and the guys who kick a lot of goals, but I think these interceptors are fast becoming, if not the most important, equally as important as these other big players on the ground. Yeah, I totally agree, Dan. I think their stock is rising by the minute. I'm almost looking at them a bit like quarterbacks in the NFL. I think in the NFL, you've either got a... The question is usually, have you got a good quarterback? If you don't, oh, forget it. You're not going to win this year, probably. I feel like that's becoming the same with this now. Have you got a good interceptor? If you don't, oh, you're going to struggle. Yeah. So, yeah. Becoming just as necessary as... uh potent midfield perhaps <laughs> yeah absolutely all right i uh, do have a few questions here to pull apart some of what we've talked about so let's get into it so how did the power expose the cats in this game so we've kind of already alluded to some of these so i'll go through this pretty quickly but extremely high pressure bringing pressure throughout the whole game uh not giving geelong any time or space they had plenty of dangerous small forwards contributing throughout the night the tall forwards more or less just bring it to ground. Wasn't a lot of marks, but Fantasia four, Motlop two, and Gray one were very dangerous. Well organized defense, uh, centering around the intercept marking machine, Aaliyah Leah, of course, and uh, just taking the game on at every opportunity. It was just almost like if you could design a uh, way to actually picture along apart the way they want to play. This is almost the complete opposite. So I think they did a fantastic job. Yeah, I thought the Port midfielders, they just looked like they wanted it more. I'm not saying that Geelong didn't want it, uh, but the Port midfielders, guys like Boak, Wines, they they looked like men possessed. They were not going to be denied. Uh, 
really interesting performance from uh, William. I think it's William Drew. Yeah. Um, yeah, 12, ta- I think it was 11 tackles. Uh, I think he spent a lot of the game on Selwood. Selwood was pretty quiet. Uh, that was really, really, I think that was a pivotal role in that midfield. It really allowed the other guys to do what they did. Cam Guthrie, very quiet. Uh, Patrick Dangerfield, as we now know, had that hand injury and dropped several marks that really cost him in some areas. Yeah, they they really did get beaten up in the midfield, I thought. Really just a good old-fashioned beating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the other side of the coin is where did it all go wrong for the Cats? So their composure exiting defensive 50 was questionable. I guess part of that is how much pressure they were being put under, but... There are about four or five of these, and a lot of them are in the first half where just like routine, what looked like routine exits, Geelong either were just leaving a little bit too much air on the ball or just not quite hitting the kick, and Port were on them like a rash. And yep. these were turnover goals in like 10 or 15 seconds after these mistakes by Geelong. So you just don't see Geelong make mistakes like this, at least not in finals. No, no, absolutely not. Much more composed. Uh, this... There was something different about this one for Geelong, I think. Uh, I know that they've lost, you know, we, we all know the record in the first week of the finals for Geelong, but uh, there was uh, there was something not quite right, and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit more. Yeah, so we, they just couldn't get any control to see it resembling a Cats-like game, couldn't get the kick mark game going, and no. just ineffective going inside 50 once they did get there, just how well Port was set up and uh, how how haphazard their own movement was. And uh, perhaps they tried to change the game a li- up a little bit with Alir taking so many intercepts in the first quarter, but it did whatever they tried, it really just didn't work. And one thing I was thinking about before, well, it's actually the next question, does the Cats game style stand up to finals like pressure? And you already talked about how I questioned it throughout the mm. year, but is is the Cats game style just inviting pressure? Like, most of the time during the season, you're not going to get a team that's going to put on this much pressure, to put no. your system under this much pressure. But if you're just, you know, trying to hit these short kicks all the time, composure, composure, little by little, isn't that, isn't that exactly what you would want them to be doing if you were the opposition and you're going to try and put them under intense pressure it it just seems like it's inviting the other team to actually hound you almost and force you into error yeah i i think well during the year and in my previous years i was probably a little bit more i guess accommodating to this kind of system i thought no look it's, it's a good thing to keep possession or to try and keep possession but that was a really big eye-opener. I've got to say, this game was a massive eye-opener in that you can try to be too cute and that you are doing these short passes and everything has just got to hit the mark. It absolutely has to be spot on. As you said, during the year, it could be a different story. Finals, we all know what happens. Finals is a completely different ball game. The intensity lifts that 5%. Guys, uh, just a, a nice short pass that... You, they might not have gotten near. They get just that little bit closer, put a little bit more doubt in your mind. I think it is. I think it's inviting a lot of pressure, a lot of unnecessary pressure in that you'll be, 
you're, you're almost sort of baiting the opposition a bit. You're sort of, you know, poking the bear a bit and just the, every moment you have, like, I'm sure there, there were tons of moments like that switch kick with danger to Henderson. And that wasn't even really one of the kicks we're talking about. But uh, every time you do that, every time you put your teammates under pressure, I just feel like there's this, it plants like a seed of doubt in their mind and that, well, you know, next time could be worse. Look, I've got a really, a really good line here, actually, that I, I think this is the best definition of pressure. Uh, it's from a guy who writes for um, the Mongrel Punt. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You may have heard of it. Yeah, I think yeah, H.B. Myers, his name, I think he's a really good writer. He, he defines pressure. It's, it's the, this is the best way I've heard pressure in footy defined. Pressure is more than just repeated attacks on the footy. It is the little things that add up to something big. It is the mindset that insists that you give all you have and then find more to make your opponent work harder. You dare them to be better, and when they're not, you make them pay. So I just felt like this was an accumulation. Yeah. Court were just always there. If they didn't quite get there, they were making them earn it. They had doubt in their mind. And yeah, I, long story short, I think you are inviting too much pressure. And I think the game's changed a bit too much now yeah. for this to be a suitable style to stack up in finals. So like, I think over the last, what, like eight or so years where Geelong has been having these early finals exits, a lot of people were kind of perplexed at, you know, why don't they play to the same level in finals as they can get to to the home and away? And, you know, is it just the opposition to bring a higher level? But maybe this is part of it. Like the fact that their game style isn't necessarily set up for finals and you know, when the opposition does bring that higher level, it can just sort of crumble a little bit. So maybe it's a little bit of a reason why they've been losing all these finals over the last so many years. No, I'm well, not saying that's the only reason, but no, it definitely no, hasn't helped. I think it's definite. I think that's a very fair assumption to make for at least the last three years in finals, yeah. I reckon. Um, but I've been trying to find some common trends with this because, you know, obviously when you see statistics like this, you obviously want to find answers. Even if there aren't any, you want <laughs> yeah. to find some common threads. But um, with that maybe being one of them, the one thing that is definitely common is the inaccuracy. Yeah, and absolutely. You, you look at some of these, so 2021, there was five goals, 13. The year before, 5-12. 2019, 7-9. 5-10, 17. It just goes on and on Often like that. Often the inaccuracy is born out of not being able to play the game your way though and you're getting quite rubbish shots so like yeah like some of it might be them you know not performing under pressure but i think often inaccuracy does just point to the fact that you're not getting the game on your terms yeah yep absolutely and but i think the common thing here is i guess with inaccuracy in finals and having said what we said about the uh, this game style possibly bringing undue pressure on and maybe starting to play in the minds of, of the Cats players, I think that this the, the mental side of it is something they really probably need to look at. Yeah, absolutely. All right, one more on Geelong before we leave them alone. <laughs> We've gone pretty hard on the old Cats. They do bounce back well, though. We should mention yeah, that. They'll, they'll more than likely win this weekend, and then we'll be worried about them going into the prelims. So. Yep. <laughs> um, does Geelong's home and away relative advantage, getting to play so many games at GMHBA and not really having to travel far for the majority of their games in Melbourne, is this giving them sort of a, almost a flattering ladder position? Like, are they actually as good as their ladder positions 
over the years have actually suggested that maybe like just say for example do we give them an extra four points for that relative advantage that no other team in the competition has because that four might even be eight points because those couple of wins can be the difference between finishing you know first third or might be third to fifth so maybe some of these years where they've actually made the top four they haven't actually been in the best four teams yeah yeah i hadn't actually considered that i mean yeah because we're not we're not saying it's a massive difference we're saying that it could be that extra win or two a year that might put them into the top four um there might be a case for that uh i think most years they're you know they are getting there under their own steam i think so but but maybe maybe there has been one or two of these years where they haven't necessarily been you know, a cut-and-dry top 14, but because of this advantage, they might have just got into the top four when maybe they shouldn't have. So instead of maybe, I guess looking back, it's been the last five years, maybe, yeah, four times out of the last five years they've been top four, maybe there could have been only two or three. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think there's, there's possibly a case for that. I mean, I think... Geelong have also proven to be pretty good on the road, I think, in those seasons. Uh, like, reasonably good. So, I don't know. Look, it, it could be. I think there's definitely a case to make that maybe some of those may not have been there. Uh, but, yeah. yeah. Look. It, it, it's perhaps a little bit harsh, but just searching for answers where you're looking at such a big discrepancy between home and away and finals yeah. performance. So, But I think we're probably more on the money with the whole game style thing we've I talked about. I think Geelong is a proven exceptional home and away season team. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Last one before we move on from this game. Can anyone stop Port in the prelim? So obviously they get the winner of Brisbane and the Bulldogs being played this weekend at the Gabba. Can either of these teams possibly prevent Port from making the grand final? Ooh. No. <laughs> I-, I thought about it for a second, but no, yeah. I think that they're, yeah, that's going to be a very daunting task. I thought if, if a team could do it, maybe the Bulldogs, but there's just yeah. too much personal allowed, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't, personally, yeah. I don't see any way Brisbane's so. going to get them. The Bulldogs would have to turn things around drastically, but they have, they probably do have the potential. So if the Bulldogs can Bulldogs find. Bulldogs might run them. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I actually expect the Lions to beat the Bulldogs this weekend. But if the Bulldogs can make it through, maybe you give them a, a bit of a sniff there. But I'd say Port is the heavy favourite to get through on that side of the draw. Yeah, I don't think the Lions would beat them. All right, last game. I know we're at roughly an hour in, but we do have one more game to talk about. And it was the uh, clash between the Bulldogs and Essendon again in Launceston, this time... It started raining. Imagine that. Rain yep. in Tassie. I'll throw to you, Johnny. Where are we going with this one? Yes, and once again, this was the first elimination final, but it was the second one played on the weekend. <laughs> so, yes, and it was the last final of the lot. So, yeah, Bulldogs in Essendon, typical win-through day in Launceston. Saw, you know, saw the Dogs and the Dons do battle in a cutthroat do-or-die contest. It was never going to be easy for either side. Uh, Don's got off to a flyer with Jake Stringer snapping truly inside the first minute or so. But from then on, it was a bit of an arm wrestle between both sides, throwing everything they could at each other. 
Uh, neither side was willing to back away. And even at half time, it was only three points in favour of the dogs. I feel like when it started raining, that really hurt Essendon. Like before that, yes. they were actually looking, I felt they, look, they were looking better than the Bulldogs. They yep. probably could have had an extra goal or two. They were linking out really well, but yeah, the rain really did not help them at all. The rain definitely played its part. And with that, the goals were going to be at an absolute premium in the second half. And it was the dogs that took full advantage of their opportunities. Uh, while they had raised their game and especially their ground level pressure, they may have had a slight rub of the green from the umpires <laughs> with uh, Cody Waitman kicking four goals from all from freeze with one bizarre decision and maybe two 50-50 decisions. Uh, nonetheless, the doggies capitalized and went on to kick eight unanswered goals to zero uh, to move on to week two against the Lions. Uh First thoughts on this one, Dan. I thought the dogs adapted way better to the wet weather than the uh, bombers. They and the dogs do this quite well. They've proven this a few times this year. Uh, they were direct when it counted, even if they overused it a little bit. Their ground level pressure, I thought, usually allowed them to win it back if they lost it. So that was uh, that was a good plus for them. The bombers, they just really struggled with these conditions. They didn't look like they were prepared to play the wet weather footy, and you know, to be a great side, you've got to have this sort of in your arsenal. And they tend, they seem to commit a lot of numbers to the contest, leaving them open in the other areas. And I thought the dogs sensed this quite early and just went straight for the throat. What, what do you reckon? Yeah, I felt like Essen was still in this game in the third quarter. And obviously they were struggling to score and were quite ineffective going forward no one was really looking dangerous other than Stringer but I would have really loved to see this game if the Bulldogs didn't get those goals from free kicks just to see what would have happened you probably would have still got a like a four or five goal Bulldog win but I feel like any chance Essendon had in this game was basically ripped away from them by some pretty horrid umpiring I would say the first one where Waitman Gets held a little bit too long in the tackle. Yeah, it's probably there. Yep. I still probably would have preferred them let that go. Oh, let it go, but yeah. Then it, they get he gets kind of some incidental contact from Draper as he goes towards him. Again, mm. let that go. Then he yep. gets a free kick from backing back into his opponent. I don't even know what that was for. Like, arms around. Like, he's the one initiating the contact. Horrible call. And yep, then terrible. the worst one of them all, when he gets bumped out of bounds... Very minimal contact inside, mind you. And all four, of course, he makes the most of it. He's a good kick for goal. But, yeah, it was just horrible to see a game separated in that way in the most important time by some pretty horrible umpiring decisions. I actually thought the standard of umpiring over the weekend was exceptional. Yep, I loved, me too. Me I loved too. how well the, the other three games were umpired. I felt like they more or less... No, we didn't put the whistle away, but... the. It had to be really there to get it. And that's the way I would love to see more games played. And maybe because it was a bit wet, they couldn't do that. But yeah, it really just did not sit well with me, the fact that he got those four calls. I felt like maximum one, I would have been happier with zero of those calls going through. Yeah, I was. I would definitely not complain if there was zero of those calls. Uh, the One or two wouldn't have bothered me too much. But uh, yeah... Was not happy with all four at all. Uh, it's it's not it's not that these 
it's not that it's bad to get these free kicks, I guess, even if, I mean, it is, but it's just the, another situation where you feel like officiating is taking over the game and not necessarily deciding the outcome, but it's become more about umpires than the people that we pay to watch, which is the players. So, and especially in a final, and especially in a wet final where goals were at a yeah, very yeah. premium. So, yeah, it, it was disappointing to see that just from a neutral uh yeah, as you said, I thought the umpiring was really good over the weekend. And yeah, that's what we like to see in finals. And I think people were getting into Waitman a bit, probably unfairly, because like the first one, he did kind of do the Selwood shrug. And I think it was another <laughs> free somewhere else on the ground. He's got that little movement where he sort of brings his shoulder up to try and get, or maybe it's dropping the shoulder down. I'm not even sure to, to try and get uh, the opposition's arm up over the shoulder. He's yeah. Kinda, he's kind of got I think that. it's just the center of gravity thing. I think that just, he just drops at the knees. Yeah. 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 So he's got that going on. And once people see that, then you're not, they're not going to be happy. People have hated Selwood for that for years. So I think that started the whole thing. And then, you know, they see him get all these free kicks and like, he wasn't. I don't think he was even playing for the free kicks. Maybe other than the first one, so like, and like he's not really playing for that one either. So it wasn't his fault. Yeah. But uh, I can see why people weren't too happy with him, and probably more, in particular, the umpires. <laughs> yes, I don't know what was said over social media uh, directed to Cody, but I'm guessing it wasn't very, very pleasant. So yeah, we don't like to hear about that. Um, couple of quick questions, and we're going to. <laughs> We've pretty much touched on this, but just very quickly, Dan, did these umpiring decisions directly affect the result of this game? Hard to say. I don't think there's any world where Essendon wins this in the wet, so I will say no. But I think it's definitely perhaps a 20 or 30-point swing, and that is massive in a game of football. So maybe there is a world where Essendon wins this game. So I don't think you can discount that if the dogs don't get those four easy goals. So I'm going to go yes. What do you reckon? Uh, look, I think it had a massive impact. I'm leading towards yes as well. The thing I'm more annoyed about is we don't know. Like, it would have been nice to just yeah, see just that game know. unfold. Yeah. yeah, without it. We, we'll never know. So disappointing. But, uh, yeah, look, I think in a wet game, it's you, when it's wet or not, it's not really how many you get. It's where you get them. And Cody kicked a lot. He kicked beautifully, but... Yeah, it, it was. Dis- I'd be disappointed. I think you'd be right to feel aggrieved if you're a Essendon fan. Yeah, absolutely. Next up, we're going to Dylan Shield. Twenty-four possessions with thirty-one percent kicking efficiency. Dan, does this glaring flaw in his game get overlooked because he's a gun ball magnet? Will Will this hurt his chances of ever being a, a, a top of the line midfielder? Yeah, I think this discussion's been going on about Shield for a long time and he's been out for a while, so obviously I haven't really been talking about him, but it's always been the knock on him and it doesn't seem like it's going to change. And now that Essendon has all these other midfielders who have kind of almost taken his place in a way, hmm. Parrish, Merritt, Chief among them, I just want, I will. it will be interesting to see what his role is for this team now because he's not going to be the dominant midfielder so when you're not the dominant midfielder and you're putting up you know less than 50 percent kicking efficiency how long are you going to stay in the side i'm not even sure they can actually carry him let alone being a star like does he have a role going forward with this team i'm not even sure 
Well, you certainly can't carry 31% kicking efficiency, uh, that's for sure. But, um, yeah, looking at these, looking at this midfield, you got, yeah, Parrish, we know what kind of season he's had. Uh, Mirrett, absolutely. E- even these guys like uh, Durham, uh, you know, McGrath goes in there a bit. Yeah, McGrath, uh, definitely, and Stringer's sort of pinch hitting. So, like, you'd have to say most of these guys are much more effective than Shield. And I know it's probably a little bit unfair in him because he's been out and this is this isn't his best performance, but you kind of know what you're going to get with Shield. You're never going to get a real polished performance. No. And you've also got Jai Caldwell, who's um, yeah, yeah, he was absolutely. a pretty first-round pick from a few years ago, and I believe he's an insider. And you want to give him Jordan. opportunities. So. Yeah. So I, I have some reservations on Shield as well. I, I, like, is he going to have the role that they thought he was going to have in this side? So we'll just have to wait and see on that. Next up. Peter Wright, six, sorry, seven goals three weeks ago to kickless in this game. Kickless, yeah, wow. Was it a bad day, or is he is he not quite going to be the player that Essendon are hoping for to kick a winning score week after week? Yeah, it's definitely not his day. The conditions such as they were, although. Norton up the other end did pretty well. And even Shaki chimed in for a couple of goals. Yep. They did have a yep. lot of ball in that second half. But I don't think Peter Wright's ever going to be the guy you can rely on week to week. He'll bob up now and then. He'll give a contest. But he's not going to be your guy who's going to win you a match every third or fourth week, in my opinion. No, I agree. And I think he's definitely the type of player that just benefits from being under the dome at at uh, Marvel, uh, and yes. <laughs> yeah, he'll give he'll win you some games here and there, and he'll, he'll kick kick his goals. But yeah, I agree. I I think uh, with him and Andrew Francis in your forward line, I think Essendon will definitely have to look at that going forward if they want to move past um, and get you know top four aspirations in future. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And just lastly on this, Dan, did you know that this is the first time since 1956 that a team has gone goalless in the second half of a finals game? <laughs> I did hear that on the coverage. That's pretty amazing stat. And uh, we know what else happened in 1956, don't we? Uh, that would have been one of uh, Melbourne's many flags under Norm Smith. Yep, absolutely. Also an <laughs> Olympic year. So an Olympic year, of course. There's plenty of omens going that way. But yeah, I guess it just highlights how dominant the dogs were in that second half and how impotent Essendon were going forward. They really didn't look like it. If it wasn't Stringer, especially in that second half, didn't really look like much was going to happen. No, no. What do you think would have happened in this game if it did stay dry? Like, would it have been closer? Like, yeah, it's very hard to say, obviously. We had, like, what, sort of a 15, Mm. 20-minute sample size before it started raining. But how, how different do you think it might have played out? Yeah, I think that uh, I would have given Essendon a chance, actually. Uh, I reckon that going down there, having a, a sort of a free hit, uh, there was pressure on the dogs. <laughs> going down there and just give it, having fun almost, get, just giving giving it whatever you had, getting their running game up and run, uh, up and going and, you know, trying to own the corridor, things like that. I mean, the Nick Hind loss was always going to hurt, I think, either way. But I would have given them a chance. I think that would definitely have been a lot closer. I think so. I guess only time will tell how beneficial this has been to the Bulldogs. A lot of the coverage is saying the Bulldogs are back and all this sort of stuff, but 
I'm just not sure how much resistance Essendon really put up in that second half. Like, so, yeah, I'm not... I think it was definitely an improved performance from the Bulldogs, but I'm just not sure they're fully out of their funk. Um, can the doggies go all the way? <laughs> well, they got to get past Brisbane first, which is going to be tricky at the Gabba, and then they've got Port. Jeez, it's going to be a hard run if they can get through to the grand final, but, you know, they're still in it. They've done it before, so... Do you, yeah, do you take any, any um, I guess if you're a Dogs fan, comfort out of the fact that they have done it before? Well, I think you have to. It wasn't that long ago, was it? So, you know, they're a live chance. Brisbane are far from a great team at the moment, at least on paper. So they'd be giving themselves a real chance. I think the real test would be Port. But, you know, Port haven't been a dominant team for most of the year, really, and they had that close game against the Bulldogs at Marvel. So I think if you're a dog supporter, you'd still have a fair bit of hope, at least, uh, yeah, until the torch is snuffed, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they can definitely make some noise. I think at the end of the day, those those injuries are probably going to get catch up with them a bit. Uh, I, I'd give them a chance to make the prelim, but yeah, I don't I don't know if they'll quite get to the grand final. Uh, it might prove me wrong, but uh, I just think it all starts in the ruck for them. And yeah, English has struggled a bit. I agree. I think they've just got too many problems. And I think almost what happened in this game almost papered over some of those cracks. But I still think the cracks are there. So um, yes. I would be expecting Brisbane to win this game. It might not be by much, but I think they will get the job done. Um, it's it's usually the trend for the dogs to sort of exit their back line towards the boundary. And, and that's obviously to protect their back line, which isn't, you know, it's, it's a little bit suspect. Yeah. I think the Lions would probably try and bring it back in board. And uh, yeah, I think they'll def- I think the dogs will run them, but if I'd have to say, I think that Brisbane will get the job done as well. It's a big home ground advantage to Brisbane at the Gabba. They do play well there and uh, it's a fast deck. They'll uh, get plenty of quick play going uh, when they get the chance. So it should be an interesting game. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, like, yeah. It'll be the more entertaining one probably. Geelong and so. the Giants might be a little bit dour, but uh, yeah, Saturday night for that second uh, semi there. We'll see who goes through to the prelim, yep. eh? No, it should be good. should be good. All right, well, thanks for all that, Johnny. Uh, great fun reliving all those finals there and uh, lots of possibilities still uh, available to us. And just for the record, I did get three out of four on my head bracket in the first week here. So oh, nice. if, anyone, if anyone's keeping score... Um, probably a slightly reckless pick going for Essendon over the Bulldogs, but everything yeah. else, everything else worked. So Very nice. That's that. Um, yeah, we'll leave it there. Uh, happy footy watching, and if your team's still in it, good luck to them. And uh, for our sakes, hopefully Melbourne can put up a decent performance on preliminary final day. Still a little while to wait. Well, it'll be yeah. night, won't it? Preliminary final night. They play them at night. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.